chapter 4, starting at verse 14. This is sort of uh, Jesus's, uh, I was going to compare it to his like campaign announcement that we're, we're seeing roll out. People are like, we're going we're gonna to run for president, but he's not running for anything. Uh, but it's kind of a big deal what he's doing. He's, he's kind of announcing, hey, this is who I am. This is what my life is going to be about. Uh, so world, y'all better get ready. Um, and as you'll find out, the people to whom he was speaking were not ready. Um, and some interesting thing hap- things happened. So here's how the story goes. Starting at verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Then he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So he grew up here. This is his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, I love it. Then, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips They were also like, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but instead to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked through the crowd and went on his way. We'll go that far. Oh my goodness, the religious people turn immediately to violence. Like we got to kill this guy. And when the religious people turn to violence and the compromising of their own integrity, what does Jesus do? See ya, I'm out. That's interesting, isn't it? More on that a little bit later. First, what I want to do is sort of paint a picture of how this would have all gone down. So I want us to, because I think it's interesting, I want us to use our, our imaginations. Because in this little piece uh, that, that Luke has written, uh, he sort of 
gives us a, a very detailed look at what happens. Jesus stepping forward, the attendant handing the scroll. He wants, he wants them to sort of visualize it and see it. And this is something that they would have been familiar with, but something that, that we're not as familiar with. So I'm going to try to describe it to you. Uh, and I'd like you to just sort of use your imaginations because I think this stuff is really cool. This is sort of a dramatic thing that's going on. There's a certain liturgy that they would have followed in the synagogue at the time, uh, and I just like it, so I'm deciding to tell you about it. And so here's how it would have all gone down. They would have been gathered together in a local synagogue in a place called Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So this is like his boy town home. This is the people knew him there. They watched him grow up as Joseph the carpenter, as his son. So they would have all been gathered together in the synagogue for worship, kind of like what we're gathered here doing uh, today. So it's not unlike what we're experiencing right now. Worship would have begun, would have began with the, the corporate recitation of what's known as the Shema. And it goes like this, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be written upon your hearts. So they would have begun worship together by saying that, reciting that together, probably in ancient Hebrew, possibly in Aramaic. So then they would have moved on to the next section of worship, and it would have been this corporate recitation of prayers, most of which would have been memorized by the people in the congregation, and they would have said them together. The next thing that happened would be the people would stand in this very dramatic moment, and the worship attendant would go and retrieve the scroll of the Word of God and would enter in in sort of a slow fashion while everybody watched as the Word of God was brought forward. This time, it's the slightly worn scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So, the worship attendant then hands the scroll to Jesus. It's heavy. It's, it's long. And Jesus might have even just struggled a little bit under its weight because it's big and heavy and it's long. Then he would have laid it out on the table before him and sort of unrolled the scroll in order to find the place that he wanted to read from. And, uh, and it might have taken him some time to do that. After he finds the place that he wants to read from, he grabs this sort of tool, this long stick, and it's got like a hand on the end of it. And he puts it down on the scroll so he can follow along where he's reading from. And he finds this place from Isaiah 61, the first four verses, and he reads them to them. He says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. He doesn't go any further. He stops right there. And this is really interesting because he stops right there in the middle of a verse. He doesn't read the rest of the verse. He sort of engages in some creative editing of the Bible. Jesus does this. This is how he treats the Bible. And it's fascinating. So if he would have gone on, 
He just cuts a part out. If he would have gone on, it would have read like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Ooh, he just cuts that part out. He's like, I'm going to take that part. I'm going to leave it over there. I'm not going to talk about it. So he edits the Bible and doesn't read. That's interesting, isn't it? More on that later at the end. So when he's finished reading, uh, he sets the pointer aside, the stick with the handy thing on the end. He carefully rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. Once again, it's heavy. It's long. Um, the exchange would have been awkward and sort of weird, but they're used to it because it happens every time they get together. And after the worship attendant covers the scroll and puts it back in its place, Jesus, the preacher, uh, takes his place on a platform uh, in a seat that's called the Moses seat. So he sits down. Everybody else is still standing they're still standing, waiting to hear this hometown boy, this dude who grew up in this town of about two to 300 people, maybe. So it's this obscure town, rural, right? Not very big. They're standing, waiting to hear this hometown boy, Joseph, Joseph's boy, uh, preach, right? So, so if that's the way they did it back then, I think we should make some changes around here. Like we're going to get a chair up here. And when, when, when we do the teaching, um, y'all can stand, and I'm going to take a seat, relax a little bit. Does that sound like a good idea? Yes. Then I know you'll stay awake. So he sits in the seat. They all stand up. And he begins by saying these words, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's it. That's the end. Shortest sermon Ever. Again, we're going to make some changes around here. I'm going to sit. You're going to stand. My sermons will be one sentence. <laughs> that sounds good. You don't have to stand for very long, right? Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What did he mean by that? What is he claiming about himself? What is he claiming about the people of God? The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. He's reading Scripture. Because he has anointed me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what he's saying. He's claiming this portion of Scripture to be his purpose. Like, this is his mission statement. Like, this is his personal mission statement. This is about me. He's claiming this to be who he is. Now, look, he's a young man who grew up in town. He learned from the local rabbis. It's likely he had the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had those memorized. Right? So he knew the story 
of God. He knew the traditions and the story of the Hebrew people, which means he knew them backwards and forwards. He knew the scriptures, which means he knew the very heart of God. He knew how God had acted in the past, and now he stands up in front of his hometown people, and he sort of announces, this is how God has acted in the past. Like, his good news, it's always been for the poor. Remember when our people were enslaved in Egypt? Remember how God went to Moses and said, go to Pharaoh and say, set my people free? Right? He's always done things like giving sight to the blind. He's always done things like released the oppressed, proclaimed freedom for those who are imprisoned by all sorts of different things. God's heart is bent in that direction towards those people. God has said once and for all that all people are created in his image and are equal in his sight. That's how God has acted in the past. That's who God has proven himself to be. So that's how I'm going to act. Those are the kinds of things that I'm going to be up to. This is my purpose. This is who I am today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And at this point in the story, as Luke tells it, um, I think the hometown people get a little bit skeptical. They're like, isn't this Joseph's boy? Like, we, we saw him grow up. Who, who does he think he is? I mean, they're liking what they're hearing. Like, God is going, God... God's bringing, this is good news for us. He's going to set his people free. He's going to help us to, to see and set us free from that which oppresses us. This is good news. This is great. They're liking what they're hearing, but they're a little bit skeptical that this Jesus guy, this hometown guy, is the man for the job. So they're a little bit skeptical. This is Joseph's boy. Who does he think he is? And so Jesus sort of hears their whispering. They're grumbling a little bit during a sermon. Let's not make that change. We don't need to do that. <laughs> and then he decides, oh, okay. Sermon not done. Let me go on. Remember when God came in the past, he says? Like there were lots of, of poor, hungry widows in Israel. Lots of them. But God helped a foreign widow instead. God helped an outsider instead. And, and remember when Elisha healed an army officer in Syria instead of those poor lepers in Israel? Remember that? Remember when God chose to work outside the bounds of his people, the chosen ones? Remember that? Huh. And after he said that, you could have, could have heard a pin drop. They became deadly silent. Deadly silent because Jesus was pronouncing judgment on his hometown people. Jesus was pronouncing judgment on the people of God. He was at the same time reminding them of their own heritage, who they really are. He was reminding them that the reason God chose them in the first place, the reason God blessed them in the first place was so that all the nations of the earth should be blessed and they weren't doing it. And if they weren't going to get it done, then God was going to get it done without them. He was going to work outside the bounds 
of his people. God refused to play by the rules in the past, and it's likely that God will refuse to play by the rules again. He'll just, people of God aren't getting it done. He'll go outside the chosen people of God to get his will done in the world. Oh, whoa. So how did the people respond? By chasing him out of town to a cliff to throw him off. So listen to this. They went from being mildly skeptical, liking what they were hearing, but mildly skeptical about the fact that Jesus was the guy to get this done. They went straight from that to murder, to violence. Like, we got to kill this guy. We got to get rid of him. What is happening there? Uh, I would say to you something that happens quite often, actually. Maybe not this dramatic, but it happens. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. First, I got a couple of things to say. First, sometimes God speaks to us in unexpected ways, ways we can always choose to ignore, choose not to accept. Because sometimes God speaks to us from the fringes of society, from the edges of society, from the part of the society that, that is marginalized. Think about where if, if the truth isn't going to come from the people of God, then God's going to speak his truth from the outside if God has to, because God is going to get his will done in the world, whether his people are going to do it or not, because he's God. So sometimes God will speak from the edges in unexpected ways. Think about Jesus. Right? He, was, he was a no one from nowhere Nazareth, a little small town of about two, maybe 300 people max, and he's the one who's going to come and be the savior of the world. The Messiah, God's going to come from the margins. God's going to do it that way. There's this other side of this too. Jesus was a hometown boy. He's in front of people who watched him grow up. They knew his family, knew his dad. Right? But when it came time for Jesus to give them some tough spiritual direction, they couldn't take it. So they brought, them, they brought him to a cliff where they're going to murder him. Right? They couldn't take the truth coming from someone so close to them. Think about it like this. You know when we were younger, like when we were teenagers, and our parents would give us direction, or they would give us warning about something, or they would give us expectations. We, we ought to sort of act in this way because this is who we are. And we thought to ourselves, man, they don't really know. They're old. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, they, they don't know what it's like to grow up in today's world. Like, this, they're trying to get me to act like they were forced to act, you know, way back then. And we sort of dismissed their directions for us. My boys are laughing over here. It's great. Yeah, it's coming. So anyway, but then later on when we grew up and we were a bit more mature, we realized how wise they really were. Right? Normally after we didn't do what they said we ought to do and maybe we got into some sort of trouble. We're like, oh, that's what it was. It happens though, doesn't it? There's something about our familiarity with some people that makes it hard for us to take direction for them, from them. It's sometimes easy 
to, to hear the truth. Sometimes it's very difficult to hear the truth about ourselves from people who are that close to us. What do they know? What do they know that I don't know? We grew up in the same place. My wife, what does she know? My husband, what does he know? My kids have something to teach me? Really? Uh-uh. I don't, come on now. Sometimes we dismiss the idea that God can be speaking to us through some people that are that close to us, from family and friends. When they say, often when people like this say something that cuts too close, we're, all, we're like, uh-uh, mm-mm. You been there? But let me ask you this, a few questions. Who is God more likely to use in your life to give you a warning or some sort of spiritual direction? Is someone who's close to you, who knows you, who loves you like nobody else in the world or, or like complete strangers? Like, who are the people acting as prophets in your life? Who are the people in your life who are willing to tell you the truth? Who are willing to say, if you continue to do this, this is probably what's going to happen and it's not pretty. Who are those people in your life? Are you willing to ask those people for direction? And will you then listen and maybe change course, take a different direction? Sometimes that's hard. The people in Nazareth, they couldn't hear it. They couldn't do it. He's just like us. We watched him grow up. What does he know? So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing I think this story is teaching us. Sometimes anger and violence and compromising our own integrity doesn't have to always lead to murder, by the way. <laughs> anger and violence and compromising our own integrity are sometimes the last defense for those who have to face the truth of their crooked religious affirmations. Sometimes anger and violence and compromising integrity are the last defense of those who have to face the truth of their crooked religious affirmations. You see, what makes Jesus' words so unacceptable to them is they undermine the commonly held religious belief that the Messiah would come and help overthrow and destroy the enemies of Israel. That's what people thought the Messiah would come and do. Right? And there was an occupying force in the nation of Israel called the Roman Empire. So they wanted the Messiah to come and violently overthrow those people. So here's Jesus, and he's talking about grace and mercy for outsiders. Right? In their minds, not only is Jesus wrong, but his ideas are also dangerous. Dangerous because it means that Israel will not regain the power it once held in the world. And if you want power, anger, violence, and compromising your integrity are the quickest and easiest ways to grasp that power and get it. And that, oh, that is ugly. Here's the deal. We religious people can sometimes become so familiar with God's story and who we think God is 
that we begin to think that God exists only for us. We, we sort of turn inward and insular. insular. Right? We're the poor for whom the good news is for. We, like, we're, we're the oppressed who need to be released. We're the blind who God is opening our eyes. We're imprisoned by so many things in this world. And God is going to finally set us free again. But we human beings can become so consumed with our own needs and our own wants that we allow those needs and we allow those wants to form who we are. Right? But we are not formed by what we need and what we think we want because often we're wrong about what we need and what we want. We're not formed by what we think the world ought to be for us so that we can grab power and arrange things so that we're benefited. We're, we're not formed by those things. We're not formed by our own needs and our own wants. We are formed by who God is because we are made in God's image. And who is God? Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's how we're formed. Here we are again, talking about being formed in the image of God. There's this little scripture. It's very powerful, but super short. It's in the Bible. It goes like this. God is love. So who we are is formed and rooted. Our identity is rooted in God's love. And look, it's awesome that we're loved by God. It is so good that God is for us. But God is never just for us. What's even awesomer is that once we've been loved and embraced and captured by the love of God, we get to be the love of God in the world. That's who we are. So I've got one more thing to say. Seems that the people of Nazareth weren't willing to treat their, their Bible with care. Right? They wanted those verses to say what they believed rather than believe what the verses in the whole Bible actually say. Let me say that again. They wanted those verses to be what they believed rather than wanting to believe what the whole Bible has to say. Maybe we ought to think about approaching the Bible, these sacred scriptures, the way that Jesus did with faith and intelligence, both. If Jesus left out the stuff, he just cuts it out, he edits. If Jesus left the stuff out about violence and vengeance, maybe we ought to think about that too. Because retribution, vengeance, violence, compromising our integrity in order to get what we want or to ensure that the world becomes what we think the world ought to be, compromising our integrity, violence and vengeance in order to get that, it's just not part of who we are. It wasn't part of Jesus's mission and it, and it shouldn't be part of our mission either as people who follow Jesus. Are we tracking? I think we should read the Bible with care, with faith and intelligence. I think we ought to read the Bible like Jesus read the Bible, with a peaceful intent. I think we ought to place those verses 
Those stories that are often used to support violence and vengeance, I think we ought to put them in their proper context. Because look, you can make the Bible say, we talk about this on Sunday nights in our, in our class, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to. Yeah. You can, make, you, can make the Bible, you can make the Bible defend acts of violence and vengeance. You can even use the Bible to support you compromising your own integrity in order to get what you want done in the world. You can use the Bible to say whatever you want it to say. And I think we ought to place those verses in their correct context, in the context of the whole Bible, the whole biblical narrative, which moves and is moving toward grace and love of God and the healing of all nations, of God putting things back together again and making things right. Because when we turn to violence, when we turn to anger, when we turn to compromising our own integrity, what does Jesus do? When the religious people do that in his hometown, I'm out. He walks right through them and goes on his merry way. And what does he do after he leaves them? What does he do? Well, if you read the rest of the book of Luke and any of the other gospels, what does he do? He proclaims good news to the poor. Oh my goodness. He, he proclaims freedom for the prisoners. He releases the oppressed. He heals people. He becomes the grace and love of God for the world. And as he's doing it, he's like, hey, follow me. Live like this. Oh, that's the kind of person I want to be. How about you? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways in which you confront us, the ways in which you help us to think a little bit more deeply about you and your interactions with the world. And thank you, God, that you are for us. Uh, we are so grateful that we've been captured and we experience your love. But God, don't let it get stopped up with us. Help us, oh God, to share it. To not compromise who we are, just to get done what we want to get done in the world. Sometimes things have to move more slowly than we'd like. Help us to, to reclaim, grab onto our integrity, and not let it go. We are people of love. We are people of grace. We are people of mercy. We are your people who extend those things to the world around us. Help us to live into that every single day of our lives. God, we want you to know this morning that we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.